taking a break from the book of Matthew this week because it's Christmas. So Luke chapter 2. Now I realize Christmas means different things to different people. I was actually pretty shocked a few years back when, when our family found out that there were a couple of young ladies who lived right down in Montpelier, Virginia, that our kids were babysitting for. Amy is one of the ones. And they had absolutely no idea that Jesus has anything to do with Christmas. And it was just like, whoa, how does, how does that happen? But they had no idea. For the family that I grew up in, Christmas was all about Jesus. Of course, we, we did have a Christmas tree. We gave presents to one another. My parents even jokingly talked about Santa Claus at different times, you know, and where he was in his journey for the night or whatever. But Christmas was all about Jesus. And one of the first things we did every Christmas morning was to read this story that we're going to be going through together. But I wanted us to go through it together. We're going to talk about four thoughts from Jesus' birth. But here's the reason we're going to do that. The overall reason. A number of years ago, someone convinced me to start giving away tracts. And so I would, you know, I would just have in my shirt pocket, I'd have a little packet of tracts about this big. It's a little pamphlet that talks about God or the Bible or how you can know for sure you're going to heaven, something like that. And so I got in this habit. I would just be out and about. I'd meet someone on the street or in the store, and I'd just pull one out of my pocket. And I'd say, hey, good morning. I'd like to give you something to read when you have a few minutes and just remind you that God loves you. Well, I got some of the most interesting responses to this. One big response was, wow, thank you so much. I'm so excited that someone else is out here who loves the Lord and talk, is talking about these things. I had a few people who didn't want them. Uh, they were usually okay about it. You know, they just tell me, no, thank you. But the, the response that surprised me the most came in a couple of forms but it went something like this. I first started noticing it like this. I would say, I just want you to know that God loves you. And they'd be like, well, duh. God loves everybody, right? But they would say it with, a, I felt like a little bit of an attitude behind it. And so I was trying to figure out, what in the world is that? And, and the further I went along, a few, you know, a few more people uh, started be a little bit more communicative with me. Let me just put it that way. And, uh, and I found out they're thinking, well, I just got divorced. I just found out my mom has cancer. I just lost my job. I just had a wreck and totally destroyed my favorite car. Or any one of a multitude of other things. And they had decided, I don't think it's true. I don't think God loves me. Well, the verses that we're going to read from Luke chapter 2 this morning are 
one of the most powerful evidences that God loves you. He loves you personally and deeply. Excuse me. And he came to this earth at great personal cost to demonstrate that to you and me. That's really the idea behind all of the four thoughts that we're going to be looking at this morning. But let's pray, and then we'll dive into Luke chapter 2. Lord in heaven, we just are overwhelmed when we think of what you have done for us, Lord, that you would love us this much, and how we thank you this morning for this truth. Uh, Father, I pray that today you would give us an even clearer picture of this, a greater appreciation for it, Lord, that we would leave here today basking in the light of the love of God uh, that changes everything. In the beautiful name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Starting with me at Luke 2, verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. All right, so you can stop there for a moment. Caesar Augustus is also known as Octavian. He was the founder and the first emperor of the Roman Empire. So before him, Rome had been a republic. Now, not a republic exactly like ours, but there were some similar ideas. So Rome had been a republic. Julius Caesar was the last ruler they had as a republic, and he, from what I read and understand, basically wrecked the empire, or the the republic. And so then Caesar Augustus comes in, and he turns it from a republic into a monarchy. And this actually brought them some benefits. They entered into a time of great peace, and you've heard of Pax Romana, Roman peace and how they made all these roads and sometimes we think it's one of the reasons that God decided to send his son right at that period of history because they had all these resources to take the gospel and just spread it out. But he turned it into a monarchy. Uh, In other words, he was the divinely sanctioned emperor and whatever he says goes. And you see it right here in this verse. He sends out this decree that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. You know, so he says it, and the world has to move. All the inhabited earth is probably uh, a reference to all the countries over which Rome had its iron thumb. Everyone they were ruling over. Verse 2. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, Quirinius is not really that important to us, but the thing I'd like you to notice about his name being in there is the first thing I'd like you to notice about the birth of Jesus. And that is that the birth of Jesus is very firmly seated in history. It's a historical event. You can check these things out. Or you can go back into your history books and find, for example, that Caesar Augustus was emperor from about 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. 
And Quirinius was governor actually two different times. Once from about 4 BC to 1 AD and then a little bit later in 6 AD. You can go check these things out. They are solidly seated in history. And we'll be talking more about that in just a moment. Verse 3. Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Okay, so a lot of people think they were all traveling around to pay taxes. But actually it says they, they were not going to pay taxes. They were going to register to pay taxes. So believe it or not, they too had paperwork. You know, I complain about paperwork every time I do taxes. 50 pages? Really? Just to pay my taxes? Well, here they had it way back then. They had to travel all that distance. As you see in the very next two verses, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family of David, and someone went with him, verse 5, in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. So if you, is the map up there yet? So here's the journey that they took. So uh, here's Nazareth right here, just right across from the Sea of Galilee. And, and remember, Nazareth was an extremely poor city. Okay, remember later when Jesus, they say he comes from Nazareth, they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it's like it possibly would have been even considered something like a slum or something, a very poor city. So they had to travel 90 miles down the Jordan Valley here, all along the Jordan River, and then up into these hills around Jerusalem, and then a little bit south of Jerusalem, they come to the town of Bethlehem. That was their trip. It would have been a very challenging trip in that day. There are some archaeologists who work over there all the time, and they say this is no easy trip. This is not something you can do in a day. It probably would have taken them about a week. And of course, Mary is extremely pregnant at this point, and she's traveling either on a donkey or she's walking. All that distance up into those hills, through those mountains, very challenging journey. Uh, you can see why she probably had that baby not long after they got there, while they were still out in that stable. But I just really like you to keep that thought in your mind. Jesus' birth is so set in history. It's not a myth, it's not a legend. A lot of people try to say that nowadays. You hear it in a lot of different places. That, you know, they talk about the Bible like it's, it's just mythology. But it is absolutely not true. If you start looking into those things, they have been very thoroughly debunked. I probably told you about the young man who had never set foot in church. And you know, he thought all these strange things about church. You need an invitation. You need a ticket. You know, of course, we know we just invite whoever we want, and anyone who wants to come and hear about the Lord Jesus is welcome to walk in the back door. He didn't know any of that. He had never even opened the Bible. But one day he's sitting in a hotel room, and he finds a Gideon's Bible in the drawer, and he pulls it out and starts reading, I think, some of these very verses. And he's like surprised. He's like, 
That doesn't sound like a myth. I think I could check this out. And he does. And he ends up becoming a Christian. And then he ends up becoming a pastor. And he leads one of the fastest growing churches around. And he's not an isolated case. Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ. There are a ton of men, Lee Strobel's one of them, who not only were unknowing about Christianity, but they actually set out to disprove it. Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ. Uh, Josh McDowell wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, The guy who wrote the book Ben-Hur, when he set out on his journey, he didn't think it was possible. One of the great archaeologists who went over to the Middle East to disprove the book of Acts ends up becoming a Christian. Because as people start looking into these things, they find out that our faith has an extremely strong, solid foundation. I think God wanted to do it that way. Because he wanted us to know that he's real and that he loves us. The second thing I'd like you to notice about Jesus' birth is that his birth is not only set firmly in history, it is set firmly in humanity. Look at the next two verses. Verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So there's nothing more human than this. If you're a dad, you, of course, have a pretty good idea of what a labor and delivery looks like. If you're a mom, you know with great and intricate detail what Mary and Jesus went through together. Of course, Jesus probably doesn't remember any of it. Right? Because when you're a kid, you have no clue. But mom remembers every single detail. There is nothing more human than that. Now, most of us did grow up in families. So we know what it's like to have brothers and sisters and a mom and a dad. We know what it's like to fight with our brothers and sisters. We know what it's like to tease our brothers and sisters. On and on and on. Jesus' life, his coming to this planet, is firmly set in humanity. He understands you. He knows everything that you are going through. He understands you. He gets you. He sees you. Because he has been there. He came to this earth to experience our emotions, our limitations, even our temptations and our suffering. Jesus experienced all of those things. So the love of God made him vulnerable, right? He not only came down to a certain time in history, but he became vulnerable so that he could understand you and me, so that he could represent us well. His love and compassion brought him to earth. Now his personal experience, sure that he understands you. 
Third thing I'd like you to notice about Jesus' birth is that it was announced by heaven. So fun. We got to go see that play last night. We're basically going through the same passage of Scripture that they were going through in the play. But look at verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. So imagine yourself, you're standing out, pitch black, dark, unless there's a moon, and and watching over sheep who are hopefully settling down for the night, so you can too. And then there's this blaze of glory. It says the glory of the Lord. It happens suddenly, and this angel comes. They are scared to death. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be assigned for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Boy, you hear the heart of God in there? On earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. He came to this earth He has it announced by these powerful, mighty, glorious beings to the shepherds. He wants us to know that he loves us. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He did it in the most humble, almost secretive way you can imagine. But I just, when I read the story, I think he just couldn't stand it. He had to tell somebody. And so he picked those humble shepherds to just come in a blaze of glory and tell them what was going on. Now, of course, this is not the first time Jesus' arrival has been announced, right? All through the Old Testament, God's been promising a Messiah. All through the Old Testament. Think about you know, that one verse, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. It's so familiar to us. For unto us a son is born. Right? We were just talking about this verse. Unto us a child is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's been announced for years, and now it's happening, and God is announcing it again. They say his name will be called Christ, and of course, Christ means anointed, the anointed one, and they say, unto you is born a Savior. He's your Savior. You say, why in the world do I need a Savior? 
Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, all have sinned and fall short of his glory. We haven't measured up to the standard that God created us for. And so we have this moral debt that we owe that would have separated us from God forever. And so our our largest problem, our biggest problem in life, there was absolutely no way we could solve it on our own. And he loved us enough to come and take care of this for us. So when Jesus went to the cross, it was as our substitute. It was as my substitute. Every sin I have ever committed or will commit God the Father laid on his son's shoulders. And Jesus carried those sins for me, paid the penalty for those sins for me. So you can be forgiven if you invite him into your life and ask him to forgive your sins. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus. It's a simple act of turning away from sin and to him in one act, turning away from sin and to the Savior. Putting your faith in Him. That's how He becomes your Savior. And He's the answer to our biggest need because this world is not the goal. We, we, you know, when we're young, we think we're here forever. Like we are eternal beings. And I think we do have eternity in our hearts. But it doesn't last on this life forever. On this planet forever. So he solved our greatest need by paying this price so we can be forgiven and be with him forever. And in that sense, he is our savior. It's announced by heaven. The last thing I'd like you to notice about Jesus' birth is that it was celebrated by men. It was celebrated by men. Look at verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. How would you describe being out in the pitch black and a blaze of glory appears and angels give you a message? You know, I can just picture some of my kids explaining that to a friend or to one another or to me. Just because there would be so much excitement there. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God. Here they are. They are still celebrating. They've told told their story. They've seen what they were told would happen. And now they're going back and they are still glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And dear friends, this is 
something worth celebrating. You know, I, sometimes I, I hear the statement from Christians that, that God never told us to celebrate Christmas. But I'm thinking, yeah, but shouldn't we just do it anyway? I mean, it's incredible what he did here. These shepherds are certainly celebrating it. The angel certainly said it is worth celebrating. Listen to what they said again. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Really, you know, you just can't easily forget Jesus' words, right? What I whisper in your ear, proclaim it from the housetops. This is, this is the good news. This is our story. This is our story. That we get to tell people there's a Savior. You can be on a better path in life. You can be forgiven. You can know for sure you're going to heaven. Wow. It is incredible, incredible news. Of course, we get to celebrate it all tomorrow morning. And I don't know what your Christmas tradition is like. But for us, we get up. We might get some treats out of our stockings. Have breakfast. But then we sit down and we'll probably be reading this story all over again tomorrow morning and singing a few songs and thanking him for sending his son all over again tomorrow morning because it is worth celebrating. This morning, I hope that every single person in this room already knows the Savior as your personal Savior. I know you may know about Jesus, that he came to earth, that he died on a cross to pay for sins. But when you think about it, a lot of people know about that without having ever really put their faith in him and asked him to forgive them. And so if you're here today and you haven't done that, I just want to encourage you, don't let Today end without inviting the Lord Jesus into your heart. It's a very simple prayer. It's certainly, it has to be backed up by something down deep in your heart. Sincere, genuine faith. But it's, dear God, please forgive me for my sins. I know I have messed up and I don't deserve your love. But please forgive me and make me your son, your daughter, Make me a new person. Give me that new life. And if you do that, I would love to hear about it. I have some gifts for you uh, to help you on your journey beyond that. But please pray together with me. Lord in heaven, thank you so much for this amazing gift we've read about again today. Lord, it is worth celebrating. And we just thank you together, Lord. We praise you. We we're so excited that you made a way so we can become your sons and your daughters and be in your kingdom, in your family, in your church. Lord, I'm all in. I want to be 
in all those places. Lord in heaven, as we leave this place today, I pray that these truths, the story would so fill our lives that we would find ways to give it away, Lord. We'd find ways to celebrate it openly for a needy world to see and hear. We love you, Lord, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.